You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. In his tragic play Faust, the German playwright Johann Wolfgang von Goethe tells the story of Faust, a scholar bored with constantly striving for success and suffering from lack of purpose. Taking advantage of Faust's despair, the devil Mephistopheles assumes the shape of a fellow scholar and proposes a bargain. If Mephistopheles can show Faust something so fantastic that he ceases to strive and begs for that feeling to continue, Faust must surrender his immortal soul. When Mephistopheles brings Faust to a witch, she transforms him into a young and handsome man, and in a mirror shows him a vision of Gretchen, a beautiful maiden. With the help of Mephistopheles, Faust ultimately seduces Gretchen, beginning a chain of tragic events which lead to her execution, but also her salvation, since she never surrenders her own goodness. In the last act of the play, frail, blind, and racked with guilt, Faust finally declares that what he truly wants is to alleviate the suffering of others. At the same time, he finally recognizes the single, blissful moment in which he stops striving, wishing this feeling would go on forever. Faust dies, having lost his bargain. But before Mephistopheles can take his soul, angels bear it away to heaven, where three holy women plead for his salvation. They're joined by Gretchen, who begs for grace, and is allowed to lead Faust, now saved, into heaven. Goethe died in 1832, the same year the complete version of Faust was published. But this story neither began nor ended with Goethe's play. The story of the Faustian bargain, in which someone is willing to trade their soul in exchange for the power to realize their desires, has captured the imagination of writers from the 16th century to the 21st. But the fullest realization of this legend exists not in the world of plays or novels, but in music. The story of Faust would go on to inspire musical compositions by Beethoven, Schubert, Verdi, Wagner, Mendelssohn, and others, as well as dozens of operas. So why has this story inspired so many musicians and composers over the centuries? That may have to do with the very nature of music. Most musicians work for years, even decades, to master their instruments and the fundamentals of musical composition. And even given this heroic effort, there's no guarantee of success. And then there's the musical prodigy, someone who, from an early age, possesses a seemingly supernatural understanding of their instrument and the inner workings of music. To what lengths will humans go for the sake of genius? What wouldn't we give to be talented, to be famous, to be the best in the world? Today, I bring you the stories of four musicians whose lives and careers spanned three centuries and whose abilities were so extraordinary that many thought they could only have come from a deal with the devil. On April 8, 1692, in a town on the far-flung eastern Adriatic coast of the Republic of Venice, Giuseppe Tartini was born.
At school, he studied the violin before moving to the Italian mainland to study law at the University of Padua. In 1711, Tartini attended a concert featuring famed composer and violinist Francesco Maria Veracini. Veracini's virtuoso playing put Tartini's modest skills to shame. He vowed to improve and rented rooms in the seaside town of Ancona, where he could study and practice undisturbed. It must have worked because by 1721, Tartini was the director of music, the Maestro di Capella, at the Basilica of Sant'Antonio in Padua. Surrounded by talented fellow musicians and composers, his career took off at last. However, Tartini tells a different story, one where his genius came not just from practice and hard work, but from the devil himself, who appeared to Tartini in a dream. French astronomer Jérôme Lalande recorded Tartini's report of the dream, writing, One night in the year 1713, I dreamed I had made a pact with the devil for my soul. Everything went as I wished. My new servant anticipated my every desire. Among other things, I gave him my violin to see if he could play. How great was my astonishment on hearing a sonata so wonderful and so beautiful, played with such great art and intelligence as I had never even conceived in my boldest flights of fantasy. I felt enraptured, transported, enchanted. My breath failed me and I awoke. I immediately grasped my violin in order to retain in part at least the impression of my dream. In vain. The music which I at this time composed is indeed the best that I ever wrote, and I still call it the Devil's Trill. But the difference between it and that which so moved me is so great that I would have destroyed my instrument and have said farewell to music forever if it had not been impossible for me to live without the enjoyment it affords me. Tartini claimed that his famed violin sonata in G minor, better known as the Devil's Trill Sonata, was an attempt to recreate the music the devil played on his violin. The first movement begins simply, but becomes increasingly difficult. The last movement requires astounding technical ability, as it requires the violinist to play trills, quickly moving between two pitches, while simultaneously playing arpeggiated triads. The sonata's dramatic turns and technical challenges throughout make it truly otherworldly. Though he later claimed that this sonata was his favorite among all his compositions, Tartini always lamented that he never quite captured the song of his dreams. He later wrote that it was, quote, so inferior compared to the sonata the devil played in his dream, that if music were not his only means of making a living, quote, I would have broken my violin and abandoned music forever. Tartini dedicated the rest of his life to the study of music and music theory. He died in Padua on February 26, 1770. His Devil's Trill Sonata would remain unpublished until almost 30 years after his death.
If Giuseppe Tartini sought to reproduce the devil's musical skill, a century later it would seem one violinist had at least equaled it. Niccolò Paganini was born in the city of Genoa on October 27, 1782. His father, Antonio, made a living as a musician as well as a maritime trader, playing the mandolin to supplement the family income. Antonio taught Niccolò to play mandolin when the boy was just five years old, but Niccolò quickly moved to the violin, showing a precocious talent. His skills quickly advanced beyond those of his local teachers, and his father took him to Parma, where a famed violinist referred Paganini to his own teachers, whom the boy also soon surpassed. As a teenager, Niccolò began to travel and play in more distant venues. Like many young men of his time, especially those just beginning to make their own way in the world, he gained a reputation as a womanizer and gambler. In the era that would make romantic heroes out of the likes of Keats, Shelley, and Byron, Paganini embodied the romantic ideal, a young, passionate musician who seemed to dedicate himself solely to the pursuit of beauty, love, and art. When Napoleon Bonaparte's empire annexed the Republic of Lucca, where Paganini happened to be working, he became court musician to the new rulers of Lucca, Napoleon's sister and her husband. But after just a few years, he decided to leave to pursue greater fame. After a concert at the famed Teatro alla Scala in Milan in 1813, his fame did grow. While in Milan, he met a singer, Antonia Bianchi, and the two began an affair. While he remained in Italy for the next several years, giving concerts alongside Antonia, his reputation spread as a dramatic performer, who preferred to memorize his music so that he could move freely about the stage instead of remaining static in front of a music stand. In 1825, Antonia gave birth to their son, though she and Niccolò would never marry. When he began a concert tour in 1828 that would continue for the next six years, with stops in every major city in Europe, the couple split. Their three-year-old son remained on tour with Niccolò. Niccolò Paganini's mastery of technique and virtuosic playing dazzled audiences. But as his fame grew, so did the rumors that there was something diabolical about him. His rakish reputation probably didn't help. After a concert in Leipzig, one poet said of the violinist that, quote, Waving his bow in the air, he appeared more than ever like a wizard commanding the elements. Throughout his career, in fact, Paganini's virtuosity and dramatic style welcomed magical metaphors. Some critics and contemporaries labeled him a magician, wizard, sorcerer, and even charlatan. One wrote, quote, Let us rejoice that this enchanter is our contemporary, and let him be glad of it himself. If he had played his violin like that 200 years ago, he would have been burned as a magician. Another remarked, quote, He is a complete wizard and brings tones from his violin which were never heard before from that instrument. It should come as no surprise then that some began to wonder if Paganini himself hadn't entered some Faustian bargain, trading his soul for the ability to play the violin with such ease and panache. By 1834, Paganini's grueling tour schedule and decadent lifestyle had caught up with him. Already suffering from syphilis, he contracted tuberculosis. While he recovered his health, he slowly declined, 
and a series of illnesses, including serious depression, forced him to end his concert career and return to the city of his birth. After a brief stint in Parma, he moved to Paris to set up a casino in 1836. The casino's failure ruined him financially, and he was forced to sell his instruments. He traveled to the south of France, settling in Nice. His health worsened, however, and in May 1840, the bishop sent a priest to perform the last rites. Believing he would recover, Paganini sent the priest away. He died a week later of internal bleeding so sudden and severe that no priest could be summoned in time. He was 57 years old. Because of Paganini's refusal to receive the last rites and rumors of his diabolical bargain, the church denied him burial in consecrated ground in Genoa. His son appealed to the Pope, and four years later, permission was finally granted to transport Paganini's body back to Genoa. After a series of lengthy appeals, Paganini finally received burial some 36 years after his death in Parma. It's all fine and good to believe that a decadent 19th-century violinist or an 18th-century composer inspired by a dream may have made a deal with the devil. But what about a blues guitarist from the Mississippi Delta at the beginning of the 20th century? It was Tommy Johnson's brother, Liddell, who first told the story. He said that late one night, Tommy took his guitar out to the crossroads near the Dockery Plantation. There, in the dark of midnight, he began to play. Just then, the devil appeared. Tommy handed over his guitar, and by the time the devil had tuned it, played a few tunes, and handed it back, Tommy Johnson could play the blues better than anyone. By 1920, Johnson had a career traveling and playing concerts around the South. He made just a handful of recordings with Victor Records and Paramount in 1928 and 29. The popularity of those recordings, which featured his virtuoso guitar playing as well as his powerful and acrobatic voice, secured his place as a master of the Delta Blues. The rumors of his diabolical dealings didn't hurt his career much either, since it turned out the curious folks in the audience paid the same price for their tickets as everyone else. His career spanned the next two decades, and he continued to play in and around Jackson, Mississippi until his death in 1956. His songs and style would have a lasting impression on blues musicians for generations to come. Like Tommy Johnson, another blues player found it helpful to spread the rumor that his skills were more than earthly. When a younger contemporary, Robert Johnson, no relation to Tommy, found that Tommy's story of making a deal with the devil brought with it an increase in record and ticket sales, he made it his own. It's a good story, and if it worked for Tommy, it just might work for him. Robert Johnson was born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi in the spring of 1911. According to one telling of Johnson's story, he could barely play the guitar as a child, though he practiced frequently. Wanting to improve, he went to study with another guitarist, one rumored to have learned supernaturally by playing in graveyards. When Robert Johnson returned to play his next gig, he was suddenly a virtuoso player. 
rumors began to spread that he had followed Tommy Johnson's example. Robert Johnson's songs helped the idea along, of course. Finding the rumor to be as lucrative for him as it was for Tommy, he leaned into the mystique, writing and recording hits like Me and the Devil Blues, Hellhound on My Trail, and Crossroad Blues. During the 1930s, he toured as a musician as far afield as Chicago, St. Louis, New York, and Canada. The end of Johnson's life is as mysterious as the rest. He died suddenly on August 16, 1938, at just 27 years old. The cause of his death has never been determined. One theory, however, potentially links the extraordinary talents and sudden deaths of both Robert Johnson and Niccolò Paganini. Both are said to have had strikingly long hands and fingers. This, coupled with their sudden deaths at early ages, have led some to believe they both suffered from Marfan syndrome, a genetic disorder affecting the connective tissues. One of the characteristic signs, disproportionately long arms, hands, and fingers, would give a musician playing string instruments an enormous technical advantage. Marfan syndrome is also potentially fatal, sometimes resulting in aortic dissection, which causes sudden and catastrophic internal bleeding. Musical genius is often associated with the supernatural. Whether we say a musician has been touched by divine or diabolical inspiration, music's ability to move us is magical. Music can inspire passionate emotion in even the most jaded listener. Neurological studies utilizing functional magnetic resonance imaging of the brain have found that listening to music stimulates all regions of the brain. Music is a whole brain process. It's one of the few stimuli that can occupy our entire mind. The desire for mastery, for true virtuosity, has driven and haunted many a musician. Giuseppe Tartini insisted that his inability to replicate the diabolical sonata of his dreams made him want to destroy his violin, if he could only live without it, that is. Paganini lived in a time when romanticism was at its height, when the ability to inspire passionate feelings seemed to be the sole purpose and best use of art. And he himself embodied the figure of the Gothic romantic hero, an artist who would sacrifice anything to excel beyond all others. By the early 20th century, Tommy and Robert Johnson made their careers on the belief that some talent can only be granted by supernatural forces. Decades before he wrote Faust, Goethe caught a glimpse of pure genius. Sometime in the mid-1760s, as a young teenager in Frankfurt, he attended a concert where he saw a seven-year-old prodigy perform a complicated concerto on violin and even play the piano perfectly with the keyboard covered by a cloth. The boy, whom Goethe would later describe as, quote, the little fellow with his wig and his sword, was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, widely recognized as the most gifted musician and composer of his, and perhaps any, era. So how can mere humans cope with this constant desire to excel, while so often falling short of genius? In Faust, Goethe gives us his answer, writing, He who strives on and lives to strive can earn redemption still. Thank you.
If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and never miss a new episode. This episode was produced by me, featuring the voice talent of Jack Krause. The classical musical pieces featured are from MuseOpen at museopen.org. Blues guitar riffs are performed by Just Kidding from Freesound at freesound.org. And all other original music is by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. If you want to learn more about the history of Faustian bargains in the music world, be sure to check out the sources link in the show notes, especially Maiko Kawabata's article, Virtuosity, the Violin, the Devil, What Really Made Paganini Demonic. Special thanks to Enchanted's Patreon patrons for supporting the production of this and every episode. If you want to support Enchanted, please visit patreon.com slash enchantedpodcast. And while you're at it, why not rate and review Enchanted on Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find us. You can get in touch with me via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com, or follow on Facebook and Instagram at enchantedpodcast, and on Twitter at enchantedpod. As always, to learn more and check out the sources and more for each episode, visit enchantedpodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted. <laughs>